0: been influenced by Instagram or someone else that has talked about a life-changing product. Happened to me, it wasn't Instagram, it was Sports Talk Radio. And uh, I was listening to one of the hosts and he was talking about a pillow of all things. And, and I'm a sucker for a good pillow. I, I, I tried the My Pillow, and that's, I don't know how that guy got away with that. That's just, he just took old packing popcorn and stuffed it inside a pillow and was like, look, it's comfortable. So I tried that. Didn't love that. Uh, Maybe you do, and that's great. I'm glad it works for you. It's your pillow, not my pillow. Um, This guy was talking about the pillow cube. Anybody heard of the pillow cube before? Anybody been suckered into the pillow cube? This guy. This radio host was talking about how life transformed. I'm going to move this because otherwise I'm just going to run over it at some point during this sermon. So, This radio host was talking about how Life transforming and how good his sleep was because he had the pillow cube. Now, I should have known it's called the pillow cube. No one ever has thought I want to sleep on a cube. And yet, I, I gave it a shot and I ordered it and I have it and I'm still using it because I spent money on it and I, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't. I'm outside the return window. So, there it is. I, I, they promised transformative sleep using the pillow cube. If you're out there wondering, maybe I should get the pillow cube, don't get it. Don't get it, okay? We are certainly not sponsored here at Compass Bible Church by the Pillow Cube. But why do we go after stuff like that? We go after stuff like that because people promise, man, this is the secret to something. It's the secret to better sleep. It's the secret to a healthier you. It's the secret to fill in the blank. And it's indicative of our desire and our quest as humanity to find the secret of life. Well, the secret to life is something that if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, you know. The secret to life is to find life or to receive life from him, true life from him. Should have consider the empty chairs in the room this morning. Should have think about the souls that could fill those empty chairs. Should you think about the people in our community who are after the secret to life and they're looking for it under every rock they can find. And here we are sitting here this morning and we know it. I want you to think about the person that may be sitting there next Sunday. I want you to think about the the husband who just found out he's getting a promotion. He's got the house that he's always wanted. He's got the marriage that everybody looks at and says, man, this is the perfect marriage. He's got the kids, and they go to the private school, and, and he drives the nicest car, and everything looks like it's going great for him, and yet he just can't seem to find satisfaction in any of it. I want you to think of somebody that might be sitting over in these seats Maybe it's an elderly woman who just lost her husband she had been married to for 50 years, and now she doesn't know where to go anymore. He was her everything, her very purpose for existing. And now that he's gone, she doesn't know what the purpose of life is anymore. Or I want you to think maybe over here sitting in these seats is a young professional couple, somebody who just got married and and they're here and and they're expecting their first child and they're, they're coming to church because they feel like church is a good place to be. They feel like there's a moral obligation to raise their kids in the church, but they're not quite sure why. See, these are people in our community who are after the secret to life, who don't know it. And you and I sit here this morning with an abundance of riches because we know what it is and it's a person it's the person of Jesus and it's the person that Nicodemus the Pharisee goes to meet in our passage this morning take your bibles and open up to John chapter 3 John chapter 3 we saw last week Jesus on the temple mount in the cleansing of the temple where he turned over the tables and In a display of zeal and passion for the glory of God and the right worship of God, he was confronting the the corruption that was taking place there, that people weren't holding God in high esteem. And that was evidenced by the fact that they were selling animals there in the court of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles couldn't come to worship anymore because of it. And the house was supposed to be a house of worship for all nations. And you remember the interaction there, and people were asking Jesus, what right do you have to do this? The Pharisees were saying, what sign are you going to do to show us that you can do these things? Well... One of the Pharisees had his interest piqued in Jesus a little bit more, perhaps, than some of the others, and that's this man, Nicodemus. Pick up in chapter three. Let's read the first two verses, at least, together. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This kicks off what's going to be over the next two or three chapters here, a series of of four different people that come to Jesus or that Jesus approaches. And, And these four people come from vastly different backgrounds, and yet all four of them are after the same thing, or all four of them, I should say, need the same thing. They need what we're here to talk about this morning, the secret to life. And they need to realize that the answer is found in Jesus. You have Nicodemus here in this section that we're looking at. And then in in chapter 4, you're going to encounter, or we're going to encounter together, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. There's another person that needed the secret to life and needed to realize that it was Jesus. Later on then, in in chapter 4, towards the end of the chapter, we're going to come across the official from Capernaum whose son was ill, and he needed the secret to life. He thinks he needs his son to be made well, but more than that, he needs something even better than that from Jesus. And then finally, we're going to see the paralytic man at Bethesda there. Who needed not to be made well physically, but he needed the secret to life, which is to be made well spiritually, and that was through Jesus. So Nicodemus is the first one there. And it says in the text, Now a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus. A man named Nicodemus, so let's talk about Nicodemus a little bit. He's a man of the Pharisees, of the Pharisees. Now, we think about the Pharisees, and you think about the Pharisees from the New Testament perspective, and you think, man, Pharisees were the bad guys, but it wasn't always the case. In fact, the Pharisees probably came on the scene somewhere between 135 to 105 BC in the intertestamental period, between the 400 years of silence from Malachi to John the Baptist. The Pharisees came on the scene, and the reason why the Pharisees came on the scene was because Hellenism, which was the the spread of Greek culture at the time, the Hellenistic culture was pervading the known world. And the Pharisees were concerned, or the Jews were concerned, during the intertestamental period here, that they were going to lose their distinctiveness as the people of God. They were concerned that the Hellenistic influence was going to come in and corrupt Judaism. That they were going to lose sight of the law. That they were going to lose sight of the prophets. That they were going to lose sight of what God wanted them to be as the distinct people of God. And so the Pharisees emerged as experts in the law during that time to try to preserve God's people and the distinctiveness of God's people with regards to the law during a time when the Hellenistic culture was creeping in everywhere and anywhere you looked. And so in their infancy, the Pharisees were actually a good organization, a good group of people. Over time, they began to shift and they began to slide. But Nicodemus was a a Pharisee, okay? But not just a Pharisee, it goes on and he says, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. What this means is that Nicodemus most likely held a position on what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish court of the the day. There were Sanhedrins that would gather in local villages and towns that were smaller. But Nicodemus was one of the, the members of the Sanhedrin that met there in Jerusalem. This was, if we could put it this way, the supreme court of Israel. In fact, recognized by the foreign rulers of other nations, they would look at the Sanhedrin and say to the Sanhedrin, you have the authority to deal with the political, religious, and legal affairs of the people. The Sanhedrin would have been made up of the two religious leading parties of the day, the Pharisees we just talked about, and also the Sadducees, which were the priestly party of the day. So Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees ruling on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin probably came to to existence around the the post-exilic time during Nehemiah and Ezra. We think there's evidence of it there. So Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the people, he's on the Sanhedrin, he's a powerful man, even so much so that Jesus in verse 10, if you'll just jump down there really quick, notice what Jesus refers to him as there. You, the teacher of Israel, think about a tenured professor. The, the clout that a tenured professor has. The weightiness that a tenured professor has. The respect that he's due. That's what Jesus is referencing with, here with this line, you are the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus is a key player on the scene. He was probably there on the temple mount when Jesus turned over the tables. He was probably there to witness and see that whole interaction. And it says there in verse 2, this man came to Jesus. Now, notice, though, when and how he comes to Jesus. It says he comes to Jesus by night. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Well, I, there's a couple of options that are out there. I think the, the best option here is I think Nicodemus was a little bashful about coming to Jesus. I think Nicodemus was concerned that if he came to Jesus, people would be wondering and scratching their heads saying, Wait a minute, you're a Pharisee. You were one of the ones that he was just confronting on the temple mount there about how the, the worship had been corrupted. You're the, the, a ruling member on the Sanhedrin. You're the teacher of Israel. What are you doing going to this rabbi? I think Nicodemus had a little bit of the fear of man that was creeping in there that was preventing him from wanting to go to Jesus publicly to ask him the question that he asks him. Now, there's that going on here. But remember about John. John's unique because John's always communicating a little bit more than first meets the eye. And so I think the other element that we have here, you remember what Jesus was described as. Jesus is what of the world? Not the darkness of the world, but the, the light of the world. Here you have Nicodemus coming to Jesus, the light of the world. But where does Nicodemus come to him? At night. Because where is Nicodemus right now, still at this time? Even though he's the Pharisee, even though he's the teacher of Israel, even though he's the ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus is still in the night of his soul, so to speak. Nicodemus is still in the darkness. Nicodemus still needs the light. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says this interesting statement to him. He says, Rabbi, which, by the way, was the same greeting that we heard from the two disciples of John that went after Jesus, Andrew and John, our writer. Rabbi, which meant teacher, we know that no one can do these things unless God is with him. We've concluded, Rabbi, that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do. These signs. There's our word. These signs. These miracles that point to a deeper meaning. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. What is Nicodemus implying here? Well... If you think about the miracles in the Bible, I think sometimes we fall prey to this mindset that says, man, the Bible is just full of miracles. There's miracles on every page of the Bible. People are being raised from the dead. The widow's oil is being refilled. We've got the parting of the Red Sea. We've got all of these, just the Bible's full of miracles. But if you really stop for a moment and think about it, that's not actually true, is it? There were really kind of three main eras or, or times that we see miracles as normative in the scriptures. The first comes with Moses, right? Moses and Joshua together, that was a time period when God was doing signs or working miracles, these extra, uh, these supernatural events, the suspension of natural law, that's what, what we're talking about with a miracle, right? When, when clearly you say, okay, there's no explanation for what we, I just witnessed other than that God did that. So the parting of the Red Sea, that's a miracle, right? When they crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land and the waters piled up, that's a miracle. So you've got Moses and Joshua. When else do you have miracles taking place in the Old Testament? Well, you've got Elijah and Elisha. Remember that you have things like the raising of the widow's son, the oil continuing to to last. You've got miracles taking place during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Really, the only other time that we see miracles as normative in the Bible is when we get to the New Testament and you've got the church age, the, the, the era of Christ and the Apostles. That's the other time when miracles become normative again amongst God's people. So Nicodemus and the other Pharisees are seeing Jesus do these signs. They're hearing he turned water to wine. He turned over these these tables and other miracles that I'm sure they, they may have been privy to at this point. And Nicodemus is saying, look, we think there's something unique about you. We think there must be something special about you. There may be implied in Nicodemus' statement here a question that's not plainly uttered. That is, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? And so Nicodemus is there with this question. He probably didn't realize his deep need. In fact, I, I know he didn't realize the depth of his need for Christ at this point. He comes to Jesus out of curiosity maybe some of you in this room have come to Jesus out of curiosity you said well I, I just I want I've heard some but I want to know more Nicodemus if you would ask the people of Israel hey does, is, is Nicodemus okay with God is Nicodemus right with God the people of Israel would have said of course he's a Pharisee he's on the Sanhedrin he's a, he's the teacher of Israel They would have looked at Nicodemus and said, man, Nicodemus has it all together. Nicodemus has nothing wrong with him. Nicodemus is, if anyone's right with God, Nicodemus is right with God. No one would have expected Nicodemus to need forgiveness, to need what Jesus is going to offer him here. And yet the reality is, just like you and I did, Nicodemus needed what Jesus was going to offer him. See, as John sets this up here, in this this instance, recording Nicodemus coming to Jesus, there's a little bit of the shock factor that, that a Pharisee would be the one on the scene. When we get to the woman at the well, it's going to seem like, okay, yeah, here's a woman of ill repute who's probably, who's we know, not probably, but living out of wedlock with another man, not her husband. Yeah, she needs Jesus, but does Nicodemus need Jesus? He's a righteous person. The answer is yes, right? Everybody needs Jesus. And we need to understand that and we need to begin to see that and we need to be able to begin to to cultivate that mindset as we look at the world around us. Nicodemus is a good reminder to us that everyone we see around us needs Jesus because the state of every person around us is that apart from Christ, they are, what the scripture plainly says, they are dead apart from Christ. Our first point this morning is just that. We need to see everyone as dead apart from Christ. See everyone as dead apart From Christ. There's a song uh, that is called Give Me Your Eyes. And and the the chorus is give me your eyes for just one second. And the the whole concept is I want to be able to see people, God, like you see people. I want to be able to see their need for you. I want to be able to see their desperation, to see that this is a soul, right? We talked about these empty chairs in this room. These empty chairs represent souls in this community that need Christ. These empty chairs represent the, uh, if I can put it this way, the walking dead all around us who need life, the secret to life that you and I know because the secret to life is not a gimmick, it's a person, and the secret to life is Jesus, have you ever seen one of those, those reels or something like where they swab a, a, a remote control in a hotel room and then they put it under a, a microscope? It's gross, isn't it? And then all of a sudden you're going, man, you're putting on plastic gloves before you're picking up that remote control at the next hotel room you go to. Or the door handle or whatever, and you see all of the germs and all the grossness that we don't see, but it's there. Y'all, we live in such a well-manicured culture and society, don't we? We live in such a materialistic culture around here. We live in a place where people are well put together. They drive nice cars, they have nice homes, and yet if they're not saved, they're dead. They are the walking dead all around us. They are decaying before our eyes. And there's a desperation that we should feel that says, man, they need to know Jesus. Jonathan Edwards once put it this way He said, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence. And best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Y'all, we live around a world that is convinced that they're okay because of the zip code that they inhabit. We're comfortable here. We don't have Hamas invading our homes here. We don't have the threat. And we think and we bought into the lie that we're okay and we're going to live forever and I'll deal with Jesus later. And that's the most dangerous and deadly lie that pervades the, the region that we live in. We're not okay. Just like the man who built his storehouses and said, you know what, I'm going to build bigger ones. And Jesus came to him and said, fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. and all of these things that you've saved up, what good will it do you? And so this point that we need to see everyone as dead apart from Christ, right? We may agree with that intellectually. We may assent to that and say, yes, doctrinally I agree with that, but I fear that functionally we deny it. Your neighbor who says, yeah, I I, I go to church. I'm I'm a Christian. And you've kind of said, okay, well, good. I can, whew, I don't have to have an awkward conversation with them. And and you've left that off. Have you asked them for their testimony? Do do you know that they're truly saved? Because if not, then they're the walking dead and they're self-deceived into thinking they're okay with Jesus. And you're living next door to somebody who's going to spend eternity in hell. And God's put you next door to them with the secret to life to do something about it. Your coworker who tells you that, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you found Jesus. I'm glad that works for you. It's just not for me. Have, have you just simply agreed to, to, to disagree, to maintain the peace at work? Do you understand that what they're telling you is I'm okay going to hell? Are you okay with that? Or your family member who's openly hostile towards Christianity in the gospel and Jesus have you agreed and, and thought to yourself, you know what, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not going to bring it up because I, I don't want to create tension in the family. Do you understand that they're going to hell apart from Christ? We live in the world of the walking dead all around us. And you have the secret to life. Too often we allow the fear of man to keep us from sharing the gospel with people who need it. Too often... We doctrinally agree that, yes, the world is lost and people are are dead spiritually apart from Christ. We doctrinally agree with that, but we functionally deny it because we don't tell them about Jesus. Nicodemus would have been the last person anyone would have expected to have to come to, to Jesus. But he needs Christ as much as anyone else. gentleman who's still an atheist, Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller, was once given a Bible after one of his shows that he did. And he talked about it in a video blog. You can find it online after later. But one of the statements he, he made is this. He said, you know what, I respect him. I don't believe what he believes, but I respect him. And he said this, because if you believe that hell exists and people are going there, how much do you have to hate someone not to evangelize? Y'all, that's an atheist saying that. How much do you have to hate someone not to evangelize? So my question for you this morning, church, is who has God put in your life? Who are the walking dead all around you? People that need the secret to life, the secret that you have. You may look at them, and from the outside, man, they may look like they've got it all put together, just like Nicodemus would have looked like he has it all put together. But the reality is, apart from Christ, they are dead, and they need Jesus. They need Jesus. Jesus. Well, there's no question that Nicodemus asks, but there's a response that Jesus gives. Again, because I I do think that Jesus was, or that Nicodemus rather, was implying something with this statement here. Hey, teacher, we know that you must be from God because what you're doing, we've never seen this before. I mean, yeah, Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha, but man, they're long gone. And what we're seeing you do right now, something is significant here about you. So he was begging a response from Jesus, but probably not the response that he gets. Pick up in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen is what this is there. It's Jesus emphatically setting up the, the truthfulness of what he's about to say. He's, he's, about to, he's saying, look, pay attention to what I'm about to say because this is, this is abundantly uh, important for you. This is true what I'm about to tell you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Stop there for a second. The kingdom of God, that that phrase is only found twice in John's gospel and is both in the passage that we're studying in this uh, this sermon this morning. But the kingdom of God, what is it? Some people want to separate the kingdom of God from the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that's the right thing to do here. Uh, The kingdom of God in the Jewish mind was the eternal state. And so Jesus is saying, you want to go to the eternal state? You want to be able to spend eternity? With, with God, with Yahweh in the Jewish mind here, here's what you have to do. You have to be born again. Verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We chuckle a little bit at this back and forth between Nicodemus and Jesus, but that's only because we're so familiar with this language. Born again Christianity, right? We, we, we've grown up hearing that. Even if you're not in the church People outside the church know the concept of a born-again believer. It's become part and parcel with the the Billy Graham Crusade era of Christianity. That's what we know. It's it's familiar to us. But we have to put ourselves in the sandals of first-century Israel and remember that this was not a concept that was readily familiar. However, I want to suggest to you that I think Nicodemus probably should have been a little bit more familiar with this concept than we think. And here's why. The concept of being born-again... By the way, some translations say born from above. I I think contextually born again fits better because that's what Nicodemus was understanding here. He wasn't understanding a separate category of birth. He was understanding a rebirth here. And he asked that question, how can a man enter into his mother's womb again? So I think the the right translation is born again over born from above, though the, the, the idea conceptually is communicating the same thing. Uh, in essence, there, but I think born again is more helpful here but but again, the the concept of rebirth wasn't brand new as Jesus is introducing it here. The spirit of God in the Old Testament as we 'll talk about momentarily here was was a, a concept of life giving and and there was a concept of of freshness and new birth associated with the spirit of God but But even more, the the Gentile converts into Judaism, okay, so somebody who was from a, a, a nation outside of Israel that wanted to become a Jew, which did happen, they were often spoken of as those who were like newborn children as they came into the people of Israel. So even the idea of conversion being associated with new birth was something that was familiar to the Jewish people. In fact, the act of baptizing Jewish converts was something that they would do and that act of baptism would symbolize for them, much like it does for us today in some regards, new birth. And so this wasn't an an out-of-left-field concept for Jesus to to make here and to suggest here to Nicodemus. The Old Testament even spoke of a, a need for radical transformation like this in the lives of Israelites, not just in the lives of the converts, but even amongst Israelites themselves. In Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel 18 verses 30 and 31, the Lord says, "Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent in turn from all your transgressions lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed." Okay, so what do we have here with Israel? We have Israel mired in sinfulness. God is saying, your sin is going to become your ruin, Israel. You need something to happen. You need a transformation to take place. And here's where he goes. He says, cast away all the transgressions that you've committed. And here it is. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Th- that, that regenerative transformation. This is a concept that, that is not Out of left field, brand new on the scene here as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. But unfortunately, Nicodemus stays squarely on the physical level. Remember the Jews, as Jesus was talking to them about the temple, he said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Same thing there. The Jewish people, they didn't go where Jesus was implying that they should go, which is to the spiritual level. They were staying on the physical level and they were looking at the building. Jesus here is inviting Nicodemus to come with him to this spiritual level of saying, you need a spiritual rebirth, Nicodemus. But Nicodemus stays on the physical plane and asks him that question. How can a man be born when he is old? Is he going to re-enter his mother's womb? Jesus answered, verse 5. Here's the truly, truly statement again. Truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is going to give further explanation to what he's been talking about. What type of rebirth? What does it mean to be born again? How can I be born again? Well, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus is with Nicodemus saying, Nicodemus, this is a different kind of birth that we're talking about here. This is not physical birth. This is spiritual birth. Jesus remains patient with Nicodemus the way he's remained patient with so many of us throughout our lives and our own testimony. What does it mean to be born of water in the spirit, though? Water in the spirit. Well, here we need to go back to Ezekiel again, this time to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. This is the backdrop to what, is, what Jesus is talking with Nicodemus about. And this would have had massive messianic implications for Nicodemus. This would have been something that Nicodemus should have resonated with. And when Jesus said you must be born of both water and spirit, that should have been alarm bells going off in Nicodemus' mind that, hey, this is significant. We're dealing with mess- messianic implications. We're dealing with eschatological end times concepts here for the Jewish hope. And here's what we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. God says, I will sprinkle clean what? Clean water. You must be born of water. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my what? My spirit within you. Water, spirit. So as, as this prophecy is having to do with the ultimate redemption of Israel, yet, that, that even still today is yet future, okay? This is, this is millennial kingdom kind of, of, of territory that we're wading into here. But Jesus with Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, is offering him the already not yet experience of that right there. He's saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. How can I be born again? You need the birth that, that, that does, and here's where we get that concept, that does come from above. You need the birth that comes from God alone. You need God to rot in you a new heart. You need him to, to cleanse you with water and wash you and put his spirit in you. And so Jesus is making quite an unambiguous statement about his identity as the expected Messiah here by making the statement about being born of water and the Spirit. And this is pointing back here to the language from Ezekiel 36. Again, Nicodemus should have gotten this. And that's why Jesus says there, did you see it in verse 7? Do not marvel. Don't be surprised at this, Nicodemus, that I'm saying these things to you. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, this is an act of God. God is the one who works this birth in you. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Think about Nicodemus for a moment. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, would have been an expert in the, what? Law. For, for Nicodemus, his whole relationship with God, with Yahweh, had to do with what? The law. It had to do with self-righteousness. It had to do with making sure that he was obeying all of the commandments. It had to do with the sacrificial system. It had to do with, this, with a lot of the Pharisees at the time. A legalistic standard of, if you do all of these things, then God will be uh, happy with you. Nicodemus was trusting himself to be right with God. And here was Jesus telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need something that doesn't come from you. You need to be born again. Nicodemus is right in saying that's not possible, physically or spiritually. We can't cause ourselves to be born again. And you know what? As you're thinking about those lost ones, those people that could fill up these chairs next week, those people that live next door to you, your coworkers, your family members, and and they're not following Jesus, here's the the, the cold, stark, hard reality for us to wrestle with. We can't cause them to be born again either. It's an impossible task. The idea you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. It's an impossible task, but again, let me remind us, we have the secret to life. We have the secret to what unlocks that impossible task. Because it's not of us, but of God. Second point this morning is this. Depend on God to give life to the lost. Depend on God to give life to the lost. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. We can't control the wind. We can't control the spirit. But we know that the Spirit does work. The Spirit does give life. If you're here this morning and you know Christ as your Savior, you are evidence that the Spirit gives life. There's a friend that my wife had back in high school who would, was, was passionate about evangelism. And he was a, a, a zealous ambassador for Christ. He would often go out on the weekends to the malls or to the other areas and he would share Christ with as many people as he could. And then he would come to school on Monday and he would be downcast and he would be saddened and he would be upset with himself. And he would often say, I didn't save enough people this weekend. Saved souls are not a notch in your belt, they're a notch in God's belt. If you've shared the gospel with someone and they've come to faith and repentance in Christ, it's because of him. He does the heavy lifting. We're simply the mouthpiece. We're the broken vessels. We're pouring forth the message. He's the one that activates the message as The Spirit gives life to the person who hears it. But we can depend on him to do that, and he delights to do that. And so we can go out and call people to be born again, knowing that though they can't cause themselves to be born again, and we can't cause them to be born again, we know the God who can. You must be born again, right? Maybe you said that to someone. Do we realize, do we understand what we're calling people to do there? We're calling them to respond to something that is is completely unnatural and even impossible for them to do. When we say to someone, hey, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation, we are asking darkness to be light and we are asking a dead body to live. And listen, of ourselves and of our own power, we're incapable of seeing that happen. We're calling them to believe when they're incapable of belief. You didn't cause yourself to be born, nor did you cause yourself to be born again. Jesus has issued this statement, or John did rather, in John chapter 1 verse 13. John 1 13, he speaks of those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but what? Of, of God. Did you catch that? In fact, let me get a running start at the context here, because this is important for us to grasp. John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. Okay, so there it looks like it's, it's on us. Well, see, it's on us to receive him and to come to him, and then he makes us children of God. But keep going in verse 13, because it says, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood. In other words, this is not a physical uh, DNA type of, of relationship with God. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our salvation is a work of God, is the point here. He's the one that saves us. Why did you come to faith in Christ? Why did you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation? Is it because something within you, a synapse fired, and all of a sudden it made sense to you, and you chose God? No. He chose you. He opened your eyes. 2 Corinthians 4 makes that plain. He says, even if our gospel is, is, is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, those who have been blinded by the God of this world. And, and what separates us from the, those that have been blinded by the God of this world? He goes on to say, because God has shown his light into our hearts through Christ. It's an act of God. We depend on God to give the life we're calling people to. And so I, for just you and I this morning, for a moment, if you're here in Christ, let that just create in your heart an overwhelming sense of gratitude to God. That he saw fit to open your eyes to understand who Jesus is and your, the, the depth of your need for him. but maybe you're sitting there this morning and saying, okay, fine, then pastor, then what can I do? You've talked to me about these empty seats and the people in my life, my coworkers, my family members, my neighbors, and, and how they need, they need to be born again. And now you're telling me that, that they, that's impossible for them to be born again and, and that I can't save them. So then what am I supposed to do? Well, let me suggest two things for you. Number one, and this is as important as the second component, but number one is this, pray. Pray. Pray for the lost in your life. Pray for the lost in our community. Pray for these empty seats that are in this room this morning. Pray that God will fill them up with people who come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Pray that God will grant the life to the people in your life who don't know Christ as their Savior. Pray that God will open the blind eyes. Pray that God will remove the veil. Pray that God will break down the walls. Pray that God will remove the obstacles. Pray that God will soften the hearts. Pray that God will cause them to be born again. Pray. Pray to the God who's able to do far more above and beyond all that we ask or imagine. That has nothing to do with the type of car that you want to drive. That has everything to do with the mission that is at hand for the church. Pray that God will see people come to faith in Christ. That's number one. Second thing that you can do is this. You can preach. I don't mean what I'm doing up here. I mean the preaching that Romans 10 talks about. How are they going to hear unless someone, what does Paul say? Preaches. Listen, all y'all in this room are preachers to a certain extent, even though we are heavily complementarian. Let me just make that abundantly clear, right? That went over a lot of heads. Okay. (laughs) Meaning, never mind. Forget it. It's just, never mind. This is one of those, like, if I had a second service, I wouldn't say that in the second service. (laughs) I don't, so there you go. Next time, I'll edit it. All y'all have been commissioned to go with the gospel is my point. All of us are preachers, proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, God has put you in a neighborhood and on a street and in a house that is surrounded by people that he has not put me around. He's put you there as his ambassador. He's put you there as his missionary to reach people for Christ. God's put you at a workplace around people that he wants you to, to be proclaiming the gospel to Again, you're around the walking dead and you have the secret to life. And so what can we do if we can't save anyone? We can pray and we can preach. And that leads us to our final point. Look at verse 11. Jesus again says, Truly, truly, we speak to you of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then Jesus kind of flexes a little bit on Nicodemus here. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, listen, I have a unique authority to be able to explain these things to you because I'm the one who came from heaven. And so I'm trying to explain heavenly realities in a way that you're going to be able to understand it in an earthly capacity. Verse 14 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again in verse 13 Jesus said no one's ascended except the Son of Man who descended. Verse 14 then the link here is Jesus says and the Son of Man's going to ascend again. Nicodemus I'm here because I've descended but I'm also going to go back. I'm going to ascend or if I can put it this way as the text does, I'm going to be lifted up again. But the ascension of the Son of Man is going to come through the execution of the Son of Man. This passage that he alludes to in verses 14 through 15 comes from Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21 verses 5 through 9, you've got the people of Israel who are grumbling against God and against Moses saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food that you've given us, this manna that you provided for us. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people again came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. This was a situation where the Israelites were deserving what they got. They were grumbling against God, complaining against God, despising the good gifts of God. And so God sends these venomous serpents into their midst that are biting them and they're dying. And they come back to Moses repentant and they say, we were wrong. Pray that God would intervene so that we might not die. Now they want God to just poof, serpents are gone, but that's not what God does. Because God wants to draw them into faith and trust in him, what does God do with Moses? He says, Moses, take the bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and whilst the serpents are still present in the camp, if anyone looks to this serpent, then he shall live. Jesus reaches back and grabs that and says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have Eternal life. Nicodemus, you want to know how you can have this life that I've been talking about, this eternal life, this new life, this regenerative life? You want to know how you can have it, Nicodemus? Well, remember what Moses did? That's going to happen, but I'm going to be the one on the stick this time. I'm going to be the one on the pole. And if anyone will look to me in faith, he will have eternal life. Jesus' patience with Nicodemus continues. And he's telling Nicodemus, just like they had to look to the serpent, Nicodemus, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to me, is what he was saying there, what Jesus was saying there. Life comes only through Christ. Listen, church, there are times in life we want to be humble. Times we may not be 100% sure about an answer. Times we may acknowledge that there's multiple ways that something might get done. But when it comes to the gospel, we cannot be shy about what we know. When it comes to life, we cannot be shy about where it's found. There's only one place. Point number three this morning is this. Ensure people know where true life is found. Ensure people know where true life is found. If someone were, were if you were on a cruise, and someone went overboard, and you saw them in the water there, clearly in distress and in need of of salvation, and you were looking down at them, you wouldn't look at them and say, hey, I've got some options up here for you. I've got the anchor. Would you like the anchor? I've also got a deck chair I could throw you. I have a sandwich left over from lunch that I could offer you. Or I've got a life ring, but I don't want to force the life ring on you. I think the life ring works best. Um, because it's, it's been proven, and it's trustworthy, and that's what it's there for. That's what its purpose is. That's what it was created for, is, is, is to save people from your very situation. But I don't want to be too proud. I don't want to be arrogant to think that there's only one way for you to be saved here. So which would you like? Do you want the anchor? Do you want that? Do you want to try that? Why don't we try the anchor? No, of course you're not going to do that, are you? You're going to look at the drowning soul and say, man, that person needs salvation. Give me the life ring. I don't care what they want. This is what they need. Y'all, again, we live amidst the walking dead, and we're busy offering them anchors and sandwiches and deck chairs when really they need the life ring. They need Jesus. And we need to be more bold about going out and telling people you need to be made right with God, and that only comes through faith in Jesus. When God told Moses, Put up the serpent, he didn't put up a pink elephant and a serpent and say, Well, Israel, choose which one you want to choose. You know what? You live your truth, Israel. If your truth says, Look to the pink elephant, you'll be fine. Guess what they would have done? They would have died. They would have died, y'all church. We cannot be bashful about the reality that we know the secret to life and the secret to life is to look to Jesus. How can someone be born again? By looking to Jesus. This is why we go out and we preach in answer to the question, well, what can we do? We can preach and we can point people to Jesus because it's only in Jesus that salvation is found. But here's the thing, y'all, don't ever tamper with or change up that gospel to make it more palatable so that people will be more okay with it. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 as well. He says, look, I'm I'm not going to ever dare to tamper with the gospel. I'm not going to change it. We refuse to practice cunning, he says, or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth. That's our job, to point people to Jesus. Y'all, the gospel is not one option among many. It's the only option. Have you seen the coexist bumper stickers on people's cars? Those stickers aren't just wrong. They suggest an absolute impossibility. Christianity cannot be one among many religions. We serve a Savior who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We serve the the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, about whom it was said in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name in heaven among men, given among men, by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. And so your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, your mom, your dad, your child, your friend, the walking dead in your life, they need Christ more than they need everything to be copacetic with you this week. They need you to make sure that they know that life is found in Christ. The secret to life, what is it? The secret to life is to receive true life in Christ. The secret to life is not a gimmick. It's not a fad. It's not a cube pillow. It's a person. It's a person that many of you in this room have a relationship with. It's a person and his name is Jesus. And our job, church, is to make sure people know that they must be born again. And that the answer to the how in that is to look to Jesus. Let me pray as our worship team comes up for our one last song. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for that glorious reality that he is the answer. And we pray and ask God that by your grace, by your mercy, you would enable us to be your ambassadors, your mouthpiece, to see lost come to faith in Christ. Lord, there are empty chairs in our midst this morning, and I pray that we would think about and ask, who in my life can I invite to be here next week? Who in my life do I know that needs to be at church, that needs to hear the gospel, that needs to be pointed to Jesus. God, we confess readily that we cannot save anyone. Otherwise, we would see no one walking around anywhere that didn't know Christ as their Savior. It's beyond our abilities. We need you to open the blind eyes to the truth of the gospel. But God, I I pray that we would be a church full of zealous ambassadors sowing the seed of the gospel as far and wide as possible and that you would graciously respond by enacting faith in the lives of those who hear it from us. God, I pray for the loved ones in this room that are represented here, people who aren't right with you, people who are the walking dead that sit at our dinner table with us, who sit in the cubicle next to us, who live in the house next door to us. God, I pray as we care about them, we love them. God, we want them to come to know Jesus as their savior. We want them to be born again. We want them to be born of water and the spirit. And so God, we pray that you would put us in a situation even this week where we would be given the opportunity to open our mouths and tell them about Jesus to open our mouths and to point them to Christ, to open our mouths and to tell them why repenting from their sins and trusting in Christ is the most important, most significant, the the best decision that they could ever make. And God, we ask that you would open their eyes and enable them to put their trust in Jesus for their salvation. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that we can sing, All I Have is Christ, and that that is the greatest reality any of us could know because that truly is the secret to life. Not a gimmick, not an income, not a zip code, not a family. It's a person and it's Jesus and it's in his name we pray. Amen.